have you ever lived on the edge, on, on the border or the boundary between an old life and a new way of living? Have you ever found yourself trapped by fear, unable to move forward in faith? Maybe it was at the beginning of this year and you swore with some resolutions that you were going to change some old habits and embrace a, a new lifestyle, and yet something just kept you back from, from moving off of that edge into that new way of living. Maybe it's a, a bad habit that you've been saying for years, I've got to get rid of, I've got to take on some new ways. Have you ever been there on, on the border, on, on the boundary, as it were? If you have then Moses' words from 3,000 years ago are words for you, words for us. Be strong and of good courage. That's the old King James Version. That's the way I memorized it when I was in the Jet Cadets for Jesus Bible Club. <laughs> yes, I was. I was a Jet Cadet for Jesus, Lieutenant Commander Glenn Miles, here to, here to serve. It was a great, a great opportunity back then to learn the Bible and memorize a lot of verses. There's also a really cool theme song that goes with the Jet Cadets Club, but Ron Jenkins still won't let me sing it in worship. He still, he still won't let me. Maybe someday. Maybe someday we will. Be strong and of good courage. It's a word that Moses wants the people of Israel to hear. It's a word that God wants us to hear even now. The book of Deuteronomy was, was written is a collection, rather, of Moses' four final speeches. It's kind of his state of the nation address to the nation of Israel. They've come now to the border. They're about to leave the wilderness. They're about to move into the promised land. And he wants them to remember who they are. He wants them to know that this is a time of transition. Yes, you'll be leaving the old ways behind, taking on a new way. Yes, your old leader will, will step down. The new one named Joshua will take, will take control, take charge, become the leader that you want and that you need, but he wants them to understand that it's not about the leadership, it's about what has brought them to this point. The leaders were strong, not because they'd gone to the right seminars or taken the right classes, but because they understood the teaching of the Lord that from thousands of years was what would drive them and push them. The God who brought them through the wilderness was the same God who would bring them into this promised land of hope. You know, I, I have this idea, this, this theory that that the biggest problem for faith is not doubt, but fear. If you remember, at the end of, of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus is about to leave his disciples, and he's giving them what's called the Great Commission. And he's instructing them and giving them a final teaching. And Matthew's Gospel says, and there were some who doubted. Now, it would be natural for me at that point to stop and say, oh, here's three things you can do to overcome doubt, or here's four intellectual ideas on finding faith, even though you're not sure about the way the world and, and, and Christianity and religion all work. No, nope, Jesus doesn't do anything. It's named by Matthew. There were many who doubted him. Jesus just skips on ahead and says, now go. With your doubts, your fear, whatever else it is that you think might hold you back, go anyway. Go into all the world and make disciples. What's a disciple? A learner, a follower. Go and make disciples. Not go and make believers. Not go and create an exclusive club where only some will get to go into heaven and the others will be sent off into eternal torment. No, no, and no. Make disciples, followers, ones who will follow in the teachings of Jesus. Moses, in many ways, did something similar. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, at the beginning of one of his speeches, he says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. 
to clear teaching. This is who we are. This is how we're defined. That verse is known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. A better translation might even be listen. It's in the imperative. It's as though Moses is saying, listen, pay attention. This is who we are. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And now, at the end, Moses is saying to them, take courage. Find strength to live this love out. He's implying to them quite, quite clearly, I, I believe, that you've been practicing it one way in the desert, and that same practice will apply in your new life in the promised land. The love that got you here is the love that will get you there and take you even further. Follow the one God, the one God we love with all our heart, soul, and mind. And implied then is if we love God, then we'll love our neighbor too. Have you seen the world's greatest musical, Les Mis? You, you may disagree with me that it's not the greatest, and that's okay, you'll still be wrong. <laughs> but there's a scene toward the end where Jean Valjean is on the border between life and death. His life is ebbing. He's about to move into death into the new life of the resurrection. And he sings, do you remember the words? To love another person is to see the face of God. It's the word that Jesus came to proclaim. It's the word that Moses gave to the people of Israel. It's the word that God has spoken since the beginning of time. To love another is to see the face of God. Moses is saying to them, continue to love in this way. You have now a new leader. You will soon have a new place to live. But the same principles of love for God and love for neighbor will apply in everything you say and do. They will give you strength for today. They will give you strength for tomorrow. This, this is what courage looks like. Courage is an act, is an act of love. I used, to think, I used to think courage was... Was, was about running into some frightening situation and, and doing something uh, brave and, and heroic and so, so much so that poets would write about me and statues would be put up in my name and in my image and it wouldn't be a cool thing, but really that's not what courage is. That's not it at all. Back in my jet cadet days, though, I thought that was true. Back when I was a jet cadet for Jesus, I thought that's really what I got to do. I remember one, lesson, one particular lesson we had. I don't know why, but Mrs. Schwartz, our leader, decided that she was going to talk about war it was, it, was toward, it was like 1970 or so, and the Vietnam War had gotten worse and worse and worse. You might remember that. And also there was a lot of fear, especially in those days in the Cold War between the United States and, and, and the Soviet Union, as it was called back then, and fear of nuclear annihilation. And she actually used that phrase, you know, how are you going to behave, boys and girls, when nuclear annihilation comes to us? <laughs> We're like in the fifth grade going, what is she talking about? What's going on? What does she know? We just sort of sat there and, and shivered in our seats. Finally, when it was over, though, we, we forgot about a lot of that, but I went up to this one girl who was also in the Jet Cadets. Her name was Susie. She was a lieutenant commander like me. She was pretty smart, and she was really cute, and I had a huge crush on her. And I said, Susie, if there is a war, I'll come to your house, and I'll rescue you. I'll help you. And she said, you're weird. <laughs> I cried all the way home that day. 
But that's the way I used to think of courage as a kid, as a child. I used to think it was about doing something heroic like that, about, about, about rescuing the damsel in distress, which at its worst is patriarchal, at its, at its best is patriarchal, at its worst it's sexist, and it's just downright silly. That's not what courage is about at all. The poet David White says, our word courage comes from the French word, and I got a C minus in high school French, so forgive me if I, if I pronounce it incorrectly. The French word cour, which means heart, which means that to have courage is to let one's heart, that is, one's love, lead you into life, the way we live. Look, look at the front of your bulletin. At the very top of the order of the service there, there's a quote right at the beginning of the service order. There's a quote from the poet David White. Can you find it? He says, courage is what love looks like when we are tested by the simple everyday necessities of being alive. Courage is what love looks like when we're living the life we have. Moses knows this is true. He knows it's an act of the heart. It's the movement of love in the world. He knows it's true. You know it's true. I know it's true. We know it's true. And yet, sometimes we just can't put it into practice. Sometimes we're just so reluctant to, to move off of that boundary, to move off of that, that border. To be, we find ourselves stuck, unable to take a step in any direction. Why? Well, I, I learned this week about something called the, the dark dot theory. Have you heard of this before? Think of it like this. If I hold up a blank piece of paper like this, what do you see? Just a white page, right? If I went over to Paul and I, and I borrowed a pen from Paul and it's a blue one and I put a big dark blue dot right in the middle of that page and held it up, what would you see? Isn't that fascinating? Max Lucado, who taught this theory to me, says that the problem in our world and especially in our churches is that too many of us let that one dark dot eclipse the rest of the page. So we stumble, so we fall, so we fail. Maybe there's a mistake along the way, whatever it might be. Too often what we do is we, we think of those failures, we think of those mistakes, we think we might do them again, and we allow that one dark dot to dominate our life when instead there's this bright, wonderful life waiting to be lived. Now, we may, we may think to ourselves with some sort of humility that, oh, sure, but really, I'm so less than perfect. I, I, my, my life, I, I've made a bunch of mistakes. I've got a lot of dark dots on my page. And so therefore, who am I to live by any sort of creed about strength and courage and loving God and loving neighbor and all that? I, I just, frankly, that's a false humility. Frankly, it's really nothing more than an excuse to dare to live, to dare to live with faith, to dare to live with, with love, for never becoming the people that God calls us to be, people of faith, people of hope, people of, of love and grace and goodness and mercy and kindness. It's a false humility, really, and an excuse. Fred Craddock, who's one of my favorite preachers, he's in the resurrection now. He told me a story once about a time he was watching a baseball game on a Saturday afternoon. And it was in the middle of the game when the announcer said, you may not know this, but the shortstop is about to break a record. If he can get through this game without committing an error, he will set the record for the most games played without making an error. And sure enough, next batter up, hits a ground ball to short. He kicks it out into left field. And what does the announcer say? Well, that's understandable. After all, he's only human. Well, Fred Craddock's a good preacher and an even better theologian. He yells at his TV and he says, only human? What was he before when he was perfect? 
all those great plays he made, all those games he played so well, when he made the catch, when he made the throw, when he did everything exactly as he was supposed to be, he was only human. You see the great news that's embedded in that story and in that idea? We are only human, and that is more than enough. Think of Genesis chapter 1, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. At the end of each day, God looks out at God's creation and says, it was good. On day 6, God creates male and female in God's image. And God looks at us, essentially, at our ancient ancestors and says, they are very good. They are very good. Stamped on our souls since the beginning of time are those two beautiful words. You and I and everyone you've met are very good. Will there be dark dots on our pages? Will there be moments when we kick the ball into left field? Absolutely. But that does not define us, finally. That is not who we are. Too often we live our lives expecting the errors to come rather than the great plays. Too often we focus on, on those minor little mistakes, sometimes even major mistakes, and we allow them to define everything about who we've become or think we are. Forgetting, forgetting those simple words, you are very good. I believe this is the heart of fear. We choose to live on the, on the border of wilderness in the promised land because we're almost always certain will fail. We're almost always convinced we can't really move forward in faith because if we do, oh, who, God doesn't even know what will happen next. It just, it just has disaster written all upon it. Frankly, churches know about this too, not just people, individuals, but churches too. Give me the, the minutes of a, of a church's board meetings from the last five years. I'll count up all the times they've tabled a motion or put off a discussion until the next month and the next month and the next month waited on a decision, and I'll show you a church in decline. I'll show you a church that's unwilling to risk. The churches that will grow in the next 10 years will be those that are willing to move off of the border from the wilderness to the promised land, from what has been to what will be, to go to the outside of the buildings, to reach out beyond itself. Churches in decline focus inward. Churches that grow take their word and their message, and they go out to the community. Think about this for a moment. This congregation has for over 100 years had a word that will save the world. I firmly believe that. Is that a gigantic goal? Yes, it is. But if we find the courage and the strength that Moses preaches about, that Jesus invites us to live within, to go outside of these walls and reach out to the city, the country, and even the global community, we'll see the change that we've dreamed of. But our world, though, our culture, I should say, seems to be obsessed with just sitting back and yelling about everyone else's mistakes, afraid of their own being seen, of course. You don't think I'm, 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 I'm speaking accurately? Well, go home today, fire up your computer, go to any website that you go to for your daily news, find an article, read it. When you get to the end, read the comments. Within 10 or 11 or 12, maybe less than that, there'll be name-calling. You're an idiot. You're a moron. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a troll. On and on and on and on and on. It's not only the way we seem to, to talk on the Internet. It's the way we seem to talk to each other in government and in places all around the country. There's a fear there of the other that is, that is so desperately needed to be exercised from our country. It's all over the place. 
and I can say this without pointing my fingers. Why? Because I'm just as inclined to do the same thing. You know who the worst persons are to listen to another sermon? Preachers. Paul's a dear soul, but most of the preachers I know, trust me, and I'm one of them. Sometimes I'll be uh, visiting a church and I'll hear the preacher up there and and I'll think to myself, well, he or she has not really done a very thorough exegetical, theological, and hermeneutical approach to the actual contextual understanding of what's happening in this homiletical idea that he or she is so valiantly trying to present and they just really aren't very good at all. Do you you have any idea what I just said? It's okay, neither do I. And what am I really doing? I'm criticizing and blocking and putting down and name-calling eventually because I'm actually afraid. I'm putting up a wall because I'm actually afraid that God's very spirit might actually say something to me. That there might be something I need to hear some fear or failure in my life that I need to confront so that I can then move forward in faith. You may recall what Teddy Roosevelt said about those who only know how to criticize. I'm going to quote him. It's a long quote, but listen. It is not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least fails while daring greatly. At least fails while daring greatly so so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Do you hear what he's saying? Live your life. Sit on the sideline and criticize, point fingers and point out who's wrong and who's right and why you're better. No, that's not a life. Get up out of the chair. Move forward in faith. Leave the wilderness behind and take on the promised land of hope that God has set before us. Brene Brown, the brilliant sociologist whose work is inspiring a whole new generation to live with courage of the heart, she took the title of her book, Daring Greatly, from that same quote. That's what Moses is saying to the people of Israel. It's what Jesus said to his disciples. It's what God has whispered to us since the beginning of time. Dare greatly to live your life. This move toward courage is an invitation to embrace the faith that we've been given, to move from negativity to positivity. The Apostle Paul wrote about this too. It's another verse I memorized when I was in that that Jet Cadets for Jesus Club. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now back when I was a kid memorizing the Bible, I used to think that verse meant... Through Christ, I can dunk a basketball. Through Christ, I can hit a home run. Through Christ, I can be the top of my class. Turns out none of those things were true. What does it really mean? It means through Christ, we can face anything. Here's a modern translation. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. That's the word spoken to us on this day. And it's true not just for you. It's true for our church. 
there are some pretty exciting things happening. There are some changes taking place. I mean, the biggest change right now is the development and design and construction of our new sanctuary at the North Campus. It's going to be a very exciting day a year from now or so-ish when we move into that sanctuary and we're able to worship there. We'll continue to worship here, of course, at South Campus. But all those changes mean there's going to be all kinds of, frankly, fear and worry. But Paul's words from 2,000 years ago speaks to us also even today. Whatever we have, wherever we are, we can make it through anything in the one who makes us what we are. That's a courageous faith, a hopeful outlook. It is the one inviting us to be fully alive in the moment named now. Brene Brown, who I mentioned a moment ago, she wrote about this. She said, the mystery of faith gives us courage. The courage to move from the wilderness of fear to the promised land of hope. Be strong. Take courage. Move forward in faith.